Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome to the Crop Watch Podcast. I'm Michael Sundelar, Cropping Systems Extension Educator. Today I'll be joined again by, or sorry, I'll be joined again with ah, Tamara Jackson Zims will be joining me again as soon as I can talk right. Anyways, today we're going to be talking about uh, soybean diseases. Hi, Tamara. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing great. Just getting a little tongue-tied today, it seems. It's okay. So today we're going to switch gears. Our last podcast was about uh, corn. Today we're going to switch and talk about soybeans. So when we look back with soybeans, um, what are we looking at for seedling diseases or maybe soil-borne diseases? What, what are our concerns there? Well, the unfortunate thing about seedling diseases and any of those soil-borne pathogens is if you've had them before, you can have them again. And in parts of the state in particular where we've got or had some wet weather, that's definitely not everywhere. We're pretty dry in some parts uh, where we've had the wet weather, you know, you can, and wet patches and spots out in the field especially that may have drainage issues, you can start seeing Phytophthora and pythium both of those organisms are water molds they like those wet conditions because they produce spores that swim in that water and phytophthora being the bigger threat that's the one we worry more about because not only does it cause a seedling disease it can actually infect and kill plants throughout the season even full-grown adult plants and can be pretty pretty devastating so Thankfully, we've got a lot of things to do in response to that disease. We've got resistant hybrids. We've also got tolerant hybrids that are effective at a low level against all all the right all the races. This tongue-tied thing is contagious. But the RPS genes, the resistance genes, are more race-specific. And so trying uh, RPS1C, RPS1K especially have been the most effective for us. But if you got a big problem, you still should consider a seed treatment fungicide for Phytophthora, which might mean adding something with higher rates of metalaxyl or methanoxin. It's got to be the higher rate for Phytophthora for it to be effective. And now we also have ethoboxum that is effective against Phytophthora. But if uh, if you're on the other part of the state where it's been very dry, you're not out of the woods for seedling diseases because we are seeing some rhizoctonia, root rot, and stem rot. So that one can be active even in some of the drier conditions too. So uh, if you're having trouble uh, identifying those, just please send us a sample at the diagnostic clinic and it'll help you make management decisions next year. But the other thing we're seeing now too are some of the herbicide injuries and some of the symptoms of herbicide injury can be confusing with seedling disease symptoms so again send send those off to the our plant and pest diagnostic clinic in Lincoln for help identifying what's going on there and provide as much information as you can on field history back a year or so and especially the distribution of these plants when you when you send them in I know it's not a common source of irrigation in the state. It used to be more common, but fewer irrigation. Is that something people need to pay a little bit more attention for some of these um, soil-borne diseases where they may have a higher risk? 
That's a good question. You know, I, I don't know that anybody's really looked at that from a research perspective, but absolutely on the on the upstream end where the part of the field where the water comes in first would probably stay wetter longer. I would imagine there would be greater risk in those fields for uh, some of these seedling diseases too. So uh, definitely keep an eye there and in, in the lower spots where you may get some ponding. Good, good call. And be careful when you dig up those symptomatic plants. If there's rotted roots, which there will be if they're seedling diseases, they'll break off really easily. And so you'll need a, you'll need a shuffle to be careful and get the whole plant up. Right. And is there a chance that we can see combinations of these soil-borne diseases where you have both a stem rot and a root rot? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it was, it's not uncommon at all to see multiple things going on, including like fusarium and pythium, uh, phytophthora, all at the same time, because they're active during the same time period and sometimes under the same conditions. So it can make it really challenging to tell what's there. And it's also why many of our seed treatments contain multiple modes of action as well. And if you start reading on what some of those tags say, you'll notice there's as many as four fungicides on that seed. And they're all from different classes of fungicides. So they act against different groups. And so that's trying to give you a broad spectrum of protection. Right. So white mold, what do we need to worry about or look for for white mold? Well, some of those soybean fields are looking really good. And so it, it's, it's heartbreaking to think about white mold and what can happen. These hot, dry conditions that we've had have been uh, not favorable for things like white mold and some of the other diseases. But we, we should talk about it now so people can think about it. And if you're in an area where you've had more of the white mold in the past, and last year, 2019, people saw more white mold in some areas like in South Central Nebraska where they may not have seen much before. Keep in mind that that fungus overwinters for years in those little black structures on the ground or in the soil. And so if conditions become favorable during flowering, that's a critical time period the spores that are produced and released in little puffs land on senescing or dying flower petals. And that's where that fungus infects. Consequently, that's the time period when it's best to treat with a fungicide if you think you need it. And so we don't have much resistance to white mold. And so if you're growing in a scenario where you know you're at higher risk, where you're getting early canopy closure, you've got a high planting population, a history of disease, um, it creates very high humidity and perfect conditions inside that closed canopy for infection to take place. And so uh, when you have flowering, occurring inside that canopy, that's a good time to treat with a fungicide. We also now have, uh, some of our colleagues are working on a, 
a monitoring system for white mold and also a prediction model. And so they're trying to use weather conditions in various areas to predict when white mold might be a threat. And so that's uh, on a really limited basis right now if you want to try that out. Later on, I think that'll be available to everyone. But that's something I would consider. And so if you still continue to have problems with it, remember wide rows and uh, using, um, I guess, planting at population densities that are more appropriate, not overly dense will help. You may have heard that some herbicides help, like uh, I think it's Cobra. And the way those herbicides have reduced white mold in some fields is that they cause defoliation. And it opens that canopy up a little bit where you get a little bit better air movement and it makes it more difficult or unfavorable for that fungus. We don't recommend use of, of that product to fight white mold. There's other ways that I think we can do that better. But if you're gonna make an application, uh, there's a number of fungicides labeled for use. And we do have an efficacy table in the 2020 and other versions of the guide for weed disease and insect management. Right. Um, a lot of information on white mold and some good ways to try to manage it. Um, moving on, uh, we, we, we've been talking about fungicides. So when I think about fungicides and soybeans, I think about frog eye leaf spot. I know it's a little early to start thinking about frog eye leaf spot, but um, our previous podcast, we were talking about, you know, effective use of um, fungicides and risk of disease or resistance to diseases. Um, what's that looking like for frog eye leaf spot? I noticed that it seems like every year, two or three more counties get added to our map that have uh, fungicide resistant frog eye leaf spot. Oh, that's right. And that's probably the worst news. Uh, in fact, now we have confirmed fungicide resistance to the group 11 QOI fungicides. Those are what we used to call strobal urines commonly. And those have been confirmed in 10 Nebraska counties. And so this is, this is a critical piece of information that having fungicide resistance in an area, it means that those products suddenly are no longer effective for you. Now, we don't know yet how widespread these problems are, but we do know that we found it in, in every county that we sampled. This was not an expansive survey. This was going out trying to get samples as quick as we can for testing and found it in every county we tested last year. We hope we can expand that effort this year and uh, do some more testing. It, it's not too early to talk about it though. There are some spots showing up on leaves and parts of the state. It's unclear if those are early frog eye or if it's more likely going to be phallosdicta. There, there are some things that look like frog eye. So if you start seeing those spots, what you should be looking for for frog eye leaf spot is the development of those little elliptical or round gray lesions in the upper leaves of the soybean plants. And they have a dark brown or a purple margin around them. And in susceptible hybrids, of course, if, you, uh, if they become severe, they can cause leaf area loss and of course yield loss. If you think you need a fungicide, please 
consider the active ingredients now that are in those products. We believe you'll get much better results using products that have two or more active ingredients that are effective. And so now you have to consider the other, um, the other classes of fungicides like the triazoles, the SDHIs, and that might mean some of our three-way fungicides might be good options as we start to battle this fungicide resistance, but only after you've done some scouting and know that you've got it out there. Um, we we want to make sure and caution people on that because using fungicides as you know a blanket application on all your acres it's not a good idea anymore in some of these uh, diseases we have fungicide resistance in now in frog eye leaf spot other states are now reporting fungicide resistance in other sweeping diseases and we uh, we haven't been testing that and so it's unknown if that's going on here in Nebraska too, like in the brown spot or in the Cercospora leaf blight that leads to uh, purple seed stain later on. So there's a lot of reasons for responsible fungicide use so we can keep using the products that are helping us manage diseases. So looking at soybeans with uh, the storms coming through with high winds, driving winds and hail, is there anything we need to keep an eye out for soybeans, especially since they're at a, you know, they've been at somewhere between a uh, V2 to V4 stage when these storms have rolled through. Good, good point, Michael. So like in corn, you know, we talked about bacterial diseases that we see often develop after some of these storm events. The same thing can happen in soybean too and many people might remember last year we saw a lot of brownish yellow lesions on leaves and much of that turned out to be bacterial leaf blight or bacterial blight on soybean. Very common diseases, bacterial blight, bacterial pustule, we can start seeing some of those things develop in soybean too. And so I'd be watching for that after areas have some of these uh, heavy rains and storms move through. But sometimes even irrigation, we're providing enough moisture in the canopy for some of those diseases to develop. So I don't think we're out of the woods and even in some of the drier areas. All right. Well, moving on to another not fun topic, soybean cess nematode. Mm. What do we have for updates for that? You know, I, I think we've talked for several years about soybean cyst nematode now. And um, I want to I reiterate, too, that the nematode's still out there. And people should still be conscientious about it. And not just as the nematode potentially can cause yield loss up to 30% in some fields. And, and in those cases, you may not even be able to see symptoms other than the yield loss itself. And so if people are not achieving the yields that they're expecting, that could be a potential reason. Just remember, though, that you can collect an, a sample of soil for nematode analysis, for soybean cyst nematode analysis. In Nebraska, in fact, it's, it's free. And so if people choose to do that, collect the soil sample and submit it to us at the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic for SCN analysis. And knowing what your population densities are and knowing which fields are affected is also important because that nematode can also 
affect other diseases that are becoming increasingly important to us in Nebraska, like sudden death syndrome and even brown stem rot too. All right. Um, how can you manage soybeans as name and toad if you know that you have it in your system? What decisions are you are you thinking about through the year? And when do they start? I mean, are you thinking of them post-harvest of corn and then moving on and planting? Or does it start at planting and then going through the growing season? That's a good question. And I think it applies to many of our diseases when I say that you can manage most of these diseases starting in the wintertime. When you're making your seed selection and you are and you're making decisions about crop rotation. Those are very effective ways to manage many of these diseases that don't cost extra. And so hyper, or variety selection is very important. Soybean cyst nematode becomes more difficult though. So to consider that corn, of course, is, and other grassy crops and alfalfa are not host for the soybean cyst nematode. So if you've got a major problem with soybean cyst, rotating out of soybean for uh, one, two, even more years will help you knock that population back every year that you're out of beans. You won't completely eliminate them though. And so when you do come back to soybean, remember selection of resistant varieties, of course, that's important. The complication is that most, and in fact, most of our varieties, over 95% of the resistant ones to soybean cyst are derived from PI88788, a type of historic resistance that did a very good job for a long time. But across the country now, and even in Nebraska, it's becoming less effective. That nematode adapts to that resistance. And so if you can get a different source of resistance like Peking or 437.654, that would help you break up that life cycle of the nematode. And it's just difficult in some of the maturity groups to find some of those other sources of resistance here uh, in the state. So that puts the pressure on us to do a better job rotating and also with seed treatment nematicides that are available now for soybean cyst. And using a combination of those practices is probably going to help you do the best job managing the nematode and thus managing other diseases that it impacts. Right. Um, when we're thinking about sudden death syndrome, um, is there anything when we look at past years that we can use to help us for new seasons or even for this season to, to help manage sudden death syndrome? Absolutely. You know, we have good news about that. So soy, soybean sudden death syndrome or SDS, we call it, it has become more important to us in recent years. We, in fact, after last year in 2019, when it was so wet, we saw a lot more sudden death syndrome in some areas and in new areas where people may not have seen it before. And so that disease, as you may remember, is in patches out in fields. It's caused by another soil-borne fungus, a species of fusarium. And when the nematode is present, it can make SDS both show up earlier than it would if the nematode wasn't there, and it can also become more severe than if the nematode wasn't there. And so 
be sure and manage your soybean cyst nematode populations. But also, once you've had sudden death syndrome, again, it's there perpetually. And so you should continue to consider SDS resistant varieties. In fact, management of SDS is 80% uh, variety selection and we know we can improve yields there's 80% difference between having a susceptible and a resistant variety but also we now have seed treatments available for management of SDS and so if you're seeing a lot of SDS and covering you know higher proportions of fields adding one of those seed treatments that are effective against SDS like Elevo uh, can help on top of the resistance, give you the best chance of reducing disease severity of SDS. So that's really, that's really good news. And we've got other products now too that are becoming available that we're also testing. And so we'll have more data on that as we move forward. All right. Sounds like there's a lot of off-season decisions that can really help you out when you're looking at sudden death syndrome. Absolutely. So with that... Once again, this is another podcast chocked full of information that some people may need more than one time through to digest. Um, <laughs> any other general thoughts before we wrap up the podcast? I appreciate everyone tuning in and want to remind everyone we have a lot of resources and people that are available to help. And so if anyone has trouble diagnosing a disease or has questions, we have resources. We have the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic and folks in Nebraska Extension like Michael and I and those in your own counties that can help. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for uh, dropping by today, Tamara. Thank you. Hopefully we'll have another great growing season. Take care. Mm -hmm.